We are continuing our series on the book of Hebrews this morning. And we are entering a section of Hebrews from really where we began a little bit last week through chapter 12 that is really one big appeal to persevere, to press on, to keep going, to hang on, to keep focusing on the right objective. For many of us, the next two chapters, chapters 11 and 12, really include well-loved favorite passages such as the Hall of Faith in chapter 11. Setting our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith in chapter 12. Even the calls to endure discipline as sons reveal to us the heart of a loving Father through difficult times. Last week, we started to turn the corner on this exhortation with the wonderful reminder that we have confidence to enter the most holy place. Encouragement to not give up meeting together, but instead to instir up one another to love and good deeds. Amazing, soul-encouraging passages mark the surrounding chapters. Yet if you've looked ahead you're aware that the passage we're going to cover this morning is, well, frankly, it's one of the hardest. Some would say the harshest warning passage in the book of Hebrews and one of the strongest in all of Scripture. The only real inkling in what we read last week that this was coming could be what really would otherwise be... a a benign-sounding statement. Don't neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you, say, as you see the day drawing near. So without any further commentary or explanation, listen. Listen to this passage and let it hit us. Let us imagine and reflect how it might have hit the first hearers simply with the do not neglect meeting together context. Hebrews chapter 10 beginning in verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately, After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified and has outraged The Spirit of grace. For we know Him who said, Vengeance is Mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. Verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let's pray together. Father, help us understand and help us receive what You intend from these hard words. 
Lord, I pray for a special grace today. Give us ears to hear. For you have included this here for us to benefit from. You intend. You intend good for us to come out of this passage. Help us not to tune you out this morning. Help us to listen and to receive and by your grace be changed, we pray. Amen. I have a bit of a confession to make, though it may be one that many parents may be able to relate to. When it comes to disciplining my children, I am at times inconsistent. Of course, I don't set out to be, and I don't usually realize that I am until I see that inconsistency reflected in the behavior of my children. It tends to be easiest to see when they are young, say in that two to seven age range, when I fail to respond consistently right away to behavior that they know they're not allowed to be engaging in. It doesn't serve them well because, well, because they think they can get away with something the next time. Now, now maybe that's just my house that that happens. Maybe no one else has ever struggled with inconsistency in their parenting and how they discipline their children. But I have a feeling it's not all that uncommon that maybe your children too have tested limits and, and keep checking to see if those limits are still in place. I heard one individual mention that a child is the only person who would play Russian roulette with five out of the six chambers loaded. If there is a chance that I can get away with this, I'm going to try. Now, the reason I think that I am most often inconsistent when I am is I'm preoccupied. I'm preoccupied with something else. Or, or perhaps I'm just lazy. I don't want to do the hard work of instructing and taking the time to work with my child in that particular moment, so I defer it to a later time. I overlook because, quite frankly, I, I don't want to be inconvenienced. But, maybe again some of you can relate to this, when unruly behavior continues and worsens, I get more and more annoyed to the point where sometimes I respond abruptly, sometimes in ways that are not exactly fitting to the crime. In those moments, my response reveals my greatest concern isn't the instruction of my child in that moment, but rather the fact that I have been inconvenienced and now I have to stop whatever really important watching TV or checking my email or driving or, or whatever thing that I was so caught up in, that is now interrupted and I have to take time to address you. It can seem... Like God is inconsistent with His discipline at times. Actually, actually, He can seem fairly consistent in not addressing what we think ought to be addressed. We observe obvious flaunting of His declared will and moral law met with no visible response. We cry out for justice when we have been personally hurt or offended, but all we get is silence on His part. But you know, we can also tend to take advantage 
of that same pattern as well. We notice that our little secret indiscretion didn't seem to have any negative consequences. Well, apart from our overactive conscience, but, but that went away after we got away with it again. The same element that is present in my children, it's common to all of our hearts. We think God's silence means that we can get away with stuff. We think He's not really serious because look what so-and-so does and, and there are no consequences whatsoever. He must not mind these inconsequential infractions. The reality is, friends, we aren't very familiar with God's justice at all. When He defers discipline or judgment, it is not because He is distracted. It is not because He doesn't have time in that moment to address what is going on. He has all the time in the world. It's because He is patient. He is merciful and long-suffering. And that, my friends, is our common, everyday experience of God. The purpose of His patience is to lead us to repentance. It's not about distractions and inconvenience with God. It's about lovingly leading His children in a way that is best for them in that moment. But, but when that patience and mercy and long-suffering are not used for repentance, but instead are disdained or despised, mistaken for weakness or impotence, friends, there will be an end point to patience. Long suffering will only last so long. Mercy, when continually spurned and rejected, will not be extended forever. As unsettling and arresting as passages like these are, we shouldn't be surprised at their inclusion in God's holy book. You cannot have Jesus of the Scriptures without the doctrines of judgment and hell. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, Think lightly of hell, and you will think lightly of the cross. So how did the words of this passage fall upon your ears? No more sacrifice for sins. Fearful expectation of judgment. Fury of fire that will consume the adversaries, trampling the Son of God underfoot, profaning the blood of the covenant outraging the Spirit of grace. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. The Lord will judge His people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There's nothing good to hold on to here. How do passages like this make it past the editors? What happens when you read this at home in your quiet times? Do you just gloss over passages like this when you read? You just put in the time? It doesn't really matter what words you're reading. You just keep moving. Maybe you don't notice how shocking and harsh this sounds. But I'm guessing for most of us there is some level of, whoa! What got into him? 
Why so ballistic all of a sudden? What exactly is the problem here? Maybe, maybe are we just being a bit disproportional in our response, God? As modern day Americans, we can have a bit of a conflicted relationship with justice and judgment. On the one hand, we value justice. We expect justice to prevail and often find ourselves indignant when justice has been flaunted. Whether it's corrupt judges, public service for celebrities, pandering juries, ill-conceived laws and regulations, these things raise our ire. We want justice to be served. And if not legally, then through some karma-esque form of comeuppance. It's the appeal of the superhero who always prevails. And the vigilante who is willing to cut through the corruption and red tape to get the job done. We sometimes even root for the thief or the scoundrel that is nobly battling against inequity or sticking it to the man. Whether in our movies or our news reports, our hearts cry out for justice. Except, except when we really like the scoundrel. Or if in some way we find that it's us on trial. Then, then mitigating circumstances come into play. Loopholes need to be found. Temporary insanity is a legitimate defense. Suddenly, mercy is our cry. The reality tends to be that when it comes to God and the Scriptures, even the most devout can become uncomfortable when the discussion turns to judgment and justice. When we read, vengeance is mine, I will repay in the fury of fire that will consume the adversaries, don't we all squirm at least a bit? We should. May none of us ever grow comfortable or complacent with the reality that there is a horrible, horrible torment awaiting those that reject God's gracious offer of salvation. Hell is more real than the air you are breathing or the chair you are sitting on. Its torments will never fade. Its fires will never be extinguished. Its miseries include those furious flames and so much more. The flames burn, but they do not Consume. They torture, but they do not destroy. Forever and ever and ever they will afflict the undying, unresting bodies of those who would not bow their knee to Christ or confess Him as Lord in this lifetime. But that is only the beginning of what hell holds. As if eternal external torture were not enough, Scripture declares that along with flames that cannot be quenched will be the worm that will not die, indicating unending internal agonies as well. Being destroyed from the outside while being consumed on the inside, yet without the relief that death would bring. Unending torment, pain, agony. But the physical torments are just a portion of what the impenitent endure. Remember the account Jesus relayed of Lazarus the beggar and the rich man? Lazarus being carried to Abraham's side. The rich man suffering the fires of hell. 
They were so intense that the rich man begged Father Abraham for his tongue to be cooled with a single drop of cool water. But in addition to the great chasm that separated him from any relief, there was so much more that he had to endure. Consider the mental, the psychological, the emotional toll that forever holds. True hopelessness. Utter hopelessness. Knowing there is no opportunity for relief ever. From that story, consider the knowledge of the acute difference between his existence and the beggars. He could see. Get this in our minds. He could see Lazarus in glory, being comforted. At the same time, he was suffering. The horrible pain that he had to endure. Knowing his experience would forever be the opposite. Instead of Christ's eternal comforts and blessings, he will only know Christ as judge and vindicator. He's not only experiencing it, he... He's able constantly to view the disparity of His eternal existence and those in glory. Suffering is one thing to know how bad. The difference between what could have been and what actually is, not just for a moment, But moment after moment, year after year, eon after eon, he had to exist not only with the reality of that difference and the certainty that this is what his future will look like day after day, millennia after millennia, but his present circumstances are a continual showcase of the regrets the past, every moment is a searing reminder of choices made, opportunities not taken, warnings not heeded, messages rejected, and the added horror of loved ones that would soon share his fate. He begged for his brothers to have someone go from the grave and warn them that they might not too suffer. The desire to warn others not to spurn the same offer of salvation that he did, but having no opportunity to reach them from beyond the grave. Knowing that all of his opportunity for action and choice had ended and passed. And now all that was left was for him to endure the justice and judgment his choices and actions had earned. Other passages refer to this torment as the outer darkness, a a picture conjuring up the feeling of being utterly alone. And yet, constant wails of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is no laughing matter. Its torments are real and there is no relief offered from them. The compassion that is available today will not be offered on that day. I rehearse these uncomfortable realities because First of all, that is where the Scripture takes us. There is a a world around us that is in imminent danger and is oblivious. 
They know not what lies ahead. But we do. That's a call for us. It's a call for us to go and to share that reality. To share that there is today hope of salvation that will not be offered on that day. We are the ones who have had this revealed to us because we are the instruments our Redeemer has chosen to use. We are the mouthpieces that that those in hell pray their family members will listen to because they can't tell them themselves. And I remind us of these realities because... Because there are those here today that need to be warned. This passage was not written to those who had already forsaken the assembly, the meeting together. It was written for the benefit of those who still gathered. They are the ones that heard this this passage read for the first time just as we are the ones gathered to hear it read today. It was meant to be a warning for those who would consider leaving Christ. Those who had not yet followed through with the decision to abandon the faith. It was meant for our benefit. For anyone who would find themselves in that place. No doubt there are those here who have, who have wondered whether any of this is worth it. Maybe your marriage is miserable. Your kids have rejected you. Or or you desperately want to be married and think Christianity is a straitjacket that keeps that from you. Or you've grown up in the church. but, But now, now that you are of age, getting some independence, you look back on what you've heard as a bunch of silly stories and inconsequential teachings. Friends, this passage is a plea to stay the course, a reminder of the need to hang on. Today is the day of salvation. None of us are promised tomorrow. It is appointed to man once to die and then to face that judgment. There are no do-overs once we cross that line. No second chances in the next life. Heed the call of the living God today. And we go over this for all of those who are genuine believers, yet really struggle with the realities of judgment and hell. We, we can brace against a God who would be capable of such treatment of His creation. We either deny it outright or or have an ongoing low-grade distrust of, of a being who would let that into his book, let alone actually carry it out. Don't, don't we all wince from time to time when, when hearing about God's vengeance and fury? All of us can tend to minimize and misunderstand the reality of God's holiness. But every thought of, why doesn't God save everyone? Or, wouldn't annihilation be a lot more humane? Is connected to not really getting what it means for God to be holy and us to be sinful. If we've been around Christianity even a little, holiness probably is not a new concept to us. We we have the Holy Bible. We are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. We know commands to be holy as I am holy. And that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. We read in Isaiah and Revelation glimpses into heaven where different creatures cry out day And night, unceasingly, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
we know that holiness speaks of God's moral perfection and His set-apartness. The reality that He is altogether not like us. He is so far above in His perfections and His character and His glory. All those things speak to His holiness, but, but how does that translate to everyday life? Well, since we are on the topic of justice this morning, let's, let's think about how it intersects with that for a moment. Holiness is, is not just a standalone attribute of God. Oh, it was right for those creatures to declare Him as holy, holy, holy. Declaring His altogether set-apartness, His purity, His grandeur. But it's also that attribute which defines His other attributes. God's love is a holy love. And God's justice is a holy justice. It is morally good and perfect. There are no loopholes or areas where He lacks all the pertinent evidence or details of the case. No crafty lawyer can sway Him from making a judgment that is right and true. He can't be bribed. There is no preferential treatment. Every crime shall meet its appropriate punishment. To not do so for even one instance, he would no longer be holy and perfect in his justice. The original rules of the universe were very simple. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day you eat of it, you will die. God's perspective on sin has always been that it is a capital offense. He has never altered from that declaration or that judgment. Ezekiel 18.20 says, The soul who sins shall die. But our normal experience is not one of immediate justice. Just as it was not for Adam and Eve on the day they ate of the tree, it would have been perfectly right for God in that moment to wipe out the human race. No heavenly creature would have declared, that's not fair, that's not right, that's unjust they probably would have applauded. For that would have been what His holiness, His holy justice demanded. In that moment though, justice was deferred. It was not forgotten and it was not neglected. In that moment, they experience God's mercy and His patience. But those were never intended to replace justice. Justice was deferred a couple of thousand years later when Christ came. And the only innocent man, truly, Sinless in his actions, perfect in his deeds, not only sinless, but having a righteousness, having fulfilled the law. The only one that never deserved the penalty of death received it in our place. For God cannot overlook sin. It cannot go undealt with and Him to remain perfect in His holy justice. Every sin must be accounted for. No one gets away with anything. But He made a way 
for the justice that was owed to you and me to be poured out upon His Son. So that we don't have to receive it. But justice will be done for every one of my sins and your sins. The only question is whether we will receive the justice that was done on our behalf or whether we will demand that we receive the full penalty of what our sins deserve. Our common, ongoing experience is of justice deferred. And so, we get used to that. We think that that God can't or won't act so much so that, that we even take offense or think He is out of line when He does act in judgment. And there are those passages that we read and it seems that God just abruptly takes someone's life. And it seems, Lord, it doesn't fit the crime. Ananias and Sapphira, they, they, they just they didn't tell the whole truth. Really, that's justice? Yes. That's justice. Now, we're not accustomed to seeing justice because we become very acquainted with mercy, with justice deferred, with not receiving what we do deserve in any given moment. The reality is that every breath we take is an act of mercy and patience on God's part. He is totally within His right in the name of holy justice to call me to account at any time. I am truly living on borrowed time with every beat of my heart. But we come to passages like this And our first response can be surprise. We want to ask questions like, why so harsh, God? If you're such a loving God, why don't you save everyone? But friends, those are the wrong questions. More biblically informed question would be, God, why would you save me? Why would you save anyone? Why am I still breathing? When perfect, holy justice would have ended all this a long time ago. The flood is not shocking. What's shocking is that it isn't repeated over and over and over again. What should surprise us is that He would save any of us. Not that God has vengeance. Not that He responds when the Spirit of grace is outraged. The blood of the covenant has been profaned and the Son of God has been trampled underfoot. That should not surprise us. When we come to passages like this, we should be reminded of what we all truly deserve from a holy God of justice. And we should marvel that we are more familiar and acquainted with His patience and His mercy than with His wrath. Then, then we're ready to ask the right questions when we come to a passage like this. Questions like, who is He speaking about here? What is the offense? Then we can ask it with the right attitude the right heart, the right sobriety. We mentioned the context was coming out of a warning to not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. We know that the book of Hebrews was written at a time of persecution and opposition when a number of Jewish Christians were contemplating leaving Christ and Christianity and returning to their old covenant roots. Which... Which is kind of the equivalent of having a really nice car, but trading that really nice car 
for a really nice brochure of that same car. It has, it has nice glossy pictures. It has all these great stats about the car. It, it tells us the key features of the car. It, it really makes the car look good. It's exciting to see what this brochure has. The only problem being, brochure doesn't get me anywhere. Instead, I've traded it. I've traded the actual experience, the actual benefit of the car for something that was solely designed to sell me the car. The author's statement, he's addressing this, this temptation to leave, to try and find something better. To go back to what we used to know and was familiar. The statement is, if, if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Wait. Go on sinning deliberately? Don't we all do that? At different times. I mean, we, we know something is wrong. We just don't want to fight right now. And we yield to temptation. In context, this is not a statement about someone who falls in any kind of way. But it's those who forsake the church and separate themselves from Christ. Should we be concerned if we have a pattern of ongoing, unrepentant sin? Absolutely. If you are battling and struggling with a particular sin, it is legitimate for a believer to be caught in sin. But a mark of the Spirit within us is a dissatisfaction with being in that place. It is a mark of a true believer that we fight against sin. Fight to get out of that snare. Get help. Bring others into the battle. The stakes are too high. Friends, if you are caught in a too familiar sin, but you're fighting, this passage is not talking about you. That fight is evident of evidence of the Spirit's work within you. Now you may be feeling like you're losing the battle most of the time. And, and I would just say, bring others into the battle. Get help. That's part of why God gives us one another. So that in our weakness, in our struggle, we are not alone. But this, this is something different. This is not a fight. This is an ongoing, deliberate commitment to sin. This is someone who consciously, knowingly rejects Christ. And there is a great difference between the individual lapses that we all have and a universal desertion of this kind. Now, let me be clear. Hearing God's Word, knowing God's Word, understanding God's Word, these are important. They are essential to knowing God and relating rightly to Him. However, they are not the same as responding to God's Word. Obeying God's Word. Putting all your trust in God's Word. Someone can be part of a community of faith. There can be individuals here. A body of believers. They can hear the messages. They can read the Word. They can understand the doctrine. And yet still reject Christ. We 
when the day of testing comes, they seek an easier way. That, that was what was happening in the context that are being written to, to these Hebrews. They have a knowledge of the truth without submitting to and receiving the benefit of that knowledge personally. Now, friends, this was written for that time. But God also included it for His people for all time. We go through a passage like this because it's very real and very possible that there are folks here going through the motions or thinking of leaving. And God has sent this to arrest our souls. To let us know what is essential, what is truly important. Just being in the same room, it doesn't make you a Christian. It doesn't make your relationship with God real and genuine. Don't play the game. Oh, Oh, see the need that you have to cling to Him who is your only hope. Why does no sacrifice remain for their sins? Does it mean that if a person knowingly rejects Christ, they won't be given another opportunity for salvation? Well, yes, if they die that way. Most of us have heard testimonies and and even some of us have lived testimonies where after rejecting Christ, even for years, someone comes to their senses. This passage isn't saying that that is not possible. What it is saying is that there is only one way to salvation. There is only one way. One truth. One life. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. To knowingly reject Christ is to place ourselves in a position where there is no other means possible to be accepted by God. Someone that stays adamant in their rejection of Christ has cut themselves off from their only access to God and His grace. And when we do this, should there be any surprise at all that all is left is a fearful expectation of judgment and of a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Verse 28 says, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. Now, it's referring to passages in the law like, like Deuteronomy 17, 2-6, through 6, where Moses writes, If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing His covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshipped them or, or the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven which I have forbidden, it is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true, and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. The author is saying, look, if death was required for transgressing the old covenant, the limited knowledge that was there, 
prior to Christ coming to reveal God, to reveal the Father, to show Himself to the world. How much worse is deserved for those with greater revelation when a knowing rejection is equated with trampling underfoot the Son of God, profaning the blood that was spilled for your benefit, outraging the Spirit of grace, Hear the irony in those words, outraging the Spirit of grace. He who has extended to you, pleaded with you, spoken to your soul to draw you to Himself. That is what you are rejecting. This isn't something that God is going to take lightly. The reality is that hell will be worse for some than others. It will be horrible for all who find themselves there. The judgment will vary according to deeds, knowledge, willful rejection. Isn't that part of the holiness, the perfectness of God's justice? It's not going to look exactly the same for all. We all inherently believe that that Hitler or Stalin or Hussein are going to pay according to their deeds. A reckoning is coming that will look different from unconverted individuals who suffered at their hands. But in the same way, Jesus says, it will be worse for those that knowingly spurn His grace and forgiveness. He says it Himself in Matthew chapter 11. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Get this for a second. we, We wish we'd go back and see him in action. Oh, that, that would build the height of faith in us. If we could see the miracles that he performed. Observe the lame and the sick healed. Oh, that that would seal it. We would never question again. Yet that was not the experience here. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, cities in the Old Testament that received judgment, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. These individuals had the great privilege of seeing most of His mighty works done. Yet, with that great privilege came greater judgment for those who rejected Him. Will it be any less for those that have God's Word, that have sound teaching, that understand the truths of the Gospel, see it in action all around them, and still reject Him? For we know Him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge His people. If you're deluded into thinking that being a good person is enough, let this remove any illusion 
It's all about what we do with Jesus. So what do we do when the Lord comes to judge His people? This passage, friends, is written as a warning. It is written because the danger is real. It is written as much for us today as it was for those who heard it 2,000 years ago. But it is written because there is still hope. A warning can be heeded. The call can be answered. Many of us in this room have grown up in a religious environment. Perhaps some of you are are thinking of rejecting it all because all you see is hypocrisy. It's sad. But it's real. I'm sure there are individuals here who have gotten a peek behind the curtain. It seems like everything you thought to be true is a sham. I don't know what your backgrounds are. I don't know the different scenarios of where people are, what you've watched and experienced where you've been burned. Perhaps others here have have wanted and tried to believe but could never really settle on this Christianity thing working for you. Maybe because of bad experiences with how people have used passages like this. I just plead with you, don't equate Jesus with all those who use His name. Don't don't pin the reality of what He came to do on the poor examples that have been paraded before you. You can reject some of the crap that you've seen and experienced and been hurt by. But to reject Jesus is an altogether different thing. Apart from Him, there no longer remains the sacrifice for sin. I understand that these are hard words to hear, but they may just save your soul from hell. Because it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. King David, after he had sinned against God by counting the number of fighting men in Israel and Judah, God had told him not to do it, not to remind, not to... Not to rely on the strength of numbers he had and knowing and counting and and deciding, can I win this battle? But to trust that God was the one fighting his battles for him. So after he had sinned, he was commanded by God to choose between three consequences. None of them were desirable. They were all meant as punishment for David. It's David's wise reply that I want us to learn from. He declared in 2 Samuel 24, Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for His mercy is great. He wouldn't choose His own punishment. Instead, He just threw Himself into God's mercy. For those that reject Christ falling into the hands of the living God is indeed a fearful thing. But the only hope of salvation is found in in those same hands. Upon the cross, the hands of the living God were pierced and bleeding so that justice could be done. And it wouldn't have to fall on us. So that you and I could be brought near to Him. The glorious things that we read about last week and being able to draw near are made possible by those pierced hands. The glorious things that we're going to be reading about in the next weeks and celebrating are possible 
by those pierced hands. If you are hearing this message, it's not too late. Fall into the hands of the living God for mercy before you find yourself there in judgment. Friends, we have the opportunity to rejoice that the fate we deserve is not the fate we must endure. He suffered in our place because justice needed to be done, but it has been served so that we can be free. I'd like us just not to move too quickly. God has brought us to a sober place this morning. I want us just to have a moment to be able to reflect on that. I don't want to lead you or tell you how you're supposed to respond. I want us to allow God by His Spirit to do that to each one of us individually. So I'd like if the band could come. And while they're coming, if we could all just close our eyes and remain quiet for a few moments and, and allow God to speak to you however he needs to.